Welcome to The Blast Zone, the podcast where we dig up the bombs that shook Hollywood and try to find out why they went up in flames. This week, it's time to cut out the box office cancer. This is Malignant. Welcome, welcome, welcome to The Blast Zone. Welcome to The Blast Zone. We are not a podcast about bad movies. We are a podcast about movies that did badly. That's right. I am John Drake, in-house film critic of my Letterboxd account. And I'm Ian Dukes. I'm a person with thoughts and feelings, and some of them are about movies. Movies like Malignant, which we're talking about today. Very exciting. Had this one in our sights since it was released, pretty much. Is this the first movie we're covering that was released while we were already a podcast? Oh, this might be. That's a special achievement. That's pretty cool, right? And we're not doing it alone. We had to call in for some backup. You know her and remember her from our fantastic episode about a terrible movie. That's my boy from almost a year ago now. Oh my gosh. That's how long it's been. But it is our friend, your friend, Twitter personality, Haley. Welcome back, Haley. How are you doing? Hi, I'm great. I'm so excited to be here. I think I've been the one bothering you to do this episode since the movie was released. You absolutely jumped at the opportunity for Malignant. (laughs) It was inspiring. It made us break our rule of saving horror movies for October because we didn't want to wait that long. We wanted to get you in here while this movie's on everybody's minds and see what we come up with. But before we get into that, how's everyone doing? Ian, how are you this week? I don't want to bring things down. We're off to a rollicking start here, but I feel kind of like a fine hamburger meat in that uh, my spirit has been ground into mush, but at the same time, I'm still able to maintain a high fat content. Well, hopefully we can get you in a hot pan and at least get some Meyer effect out of you. Put a good sear on me, please. You managed to have just the most creative ways to say you feel bad every week. It's really impressive. How about you, Haley? What's going on? Also terrible week, I think just yeah. goes without saying. And my apartment started leaking and hasn't oh, no. stopped. So, you know, also feel like hamburger meat. Did you ask it nicely not to do that? I tried my best. I tried oh. to cut out the cancer. But. No dice. It always grows back. It's like mold, what you will get if your apartment keeps leaking. (laughs) So before we get into Malignant, what did everyone bring to show and tell this week? Was there a movie or a TV show you watched that you thought would be exciting to tell the listeners about? I watched something. Can I start? Go for it. I watched a spooky tale of a girl whose family had this shadowy secret brother who they tried to bury away in the past and forget all about. But he comes back. It's called Encanto. Oh, oh my God. <laughs> Damn. Got us. Some parallels I didn't quite consider. <laughs> I, uh, I took a while to get around to this one, but uh, you know, Lin-Manuel, he can write fun, catchy pop show tunes, some lyrical swagger. The movie looks gorgeous. Treat for the eyes. Do you think he's biting his lip when he's writing these songs? I know I am. <laughs> There's the famous, we will post it on the episode notes, the famous Lin-Manuel Miranda photo of him, I guess, trying to be seductive, biting his lip. He's not trying. He's succeeding. <laughs> I guess that's a matter of perspective. <laughs> yeah. So tell us more about Encanto, Ian. How did you find it? What was interesting to me, like what I noticed was in this animated space, the filmmakers are able to paint the stories in these really bold, broad brushstrokes where the characters make these big emotional turns from feeling one way to feeling exactly the other way, these big life moments, and they do it in a really fast, tight space. It's something about the heightened reality of the animated world that you're in lets them get away with these moves, these big emotional life changes, like bang, 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 and it, you just go with it. And it works because you feel the feelings, which is what I like to do. Let it scratch that itch for you. I've watched it one once, but I want to go back to it. The first time I watch an animated movie at this point in my life, I retain nothing because I'm watching it with my kids usually. So if I like it, I have to sit down after they go to bed and pay attention to it. Because yeah, I feel bad claiming to have watched it because I like the songs and I remember a few things from it, but I was mostly trying to pick up snacks from inside the couch cushions and <laughs> stop people from hitting each other. But it sounds like it wasn't popular with them if they didn't make you watch it a hundred more times. It's been a long time since they've had a movie like that for whatever reason. But I I don't know. I think my son is really into Sonic the Hedgehog 2 right now. So that might be the one that that breaks the spell. (laughs) Yeah, it was his first trip to the theater. It was really fun. Oh my gosh, that's wonderful. Yeah, it was a great time. You got to indoctrinate them young with Sonic. Absolutely. Yes. I remember the cartoon. I've been trying to find it somewhere. I used to love that cartoon, but no luck so far. Haley, I understand we have a thematically tied two movies to bring. So why don't you start? Because yours is older. Yes. I watched Matchstick Men this past week. That was my movie. I had knew nothing about it and going into it, I was like, okay, classic con movie from the 2000s. Like what could go wrong and everything, but it was still really good. (laughs) If you're looking for a good Nick Cage movie, go no further. Almost forgotten nowadays. It doesn't come up often, even when you're discussing like Ridley Scott's filmography, Mm -hmm. because I feel like there was a lot of that going around this year since he had The Last Duel and House of Gucci come out so close together. There was a lot of like podcasts doing retrospectives 
perspectives on his movies. And it's not one of the ones that comes up that often, but I really like it. And it is not at all what you expect by the end, which is no. all I want to say about it right now. Yes. The ending made me feel every kind of emotion possible, which cool. I think is hard to do. Yeah. It sounds like a movie Ian would like. I know. I'm putting that right on the top of my short list. <laughs> so that ties into the movie I saw. Listeners who stayed till the end of our solo episode will know that I had plans to go to the theater and check out the unbearable weight of massive talent. And guess what? I did. Ooh. And it rules. I think I gave it a three and a half on Letterboxd because it's not the best movie of all time, but it's solid. It's funny. Pedro Pascal showing a lot of comedy chops in this movie that I did not expect him to have. We guess we saw a little bit of it in Wonder Woman 1984 but the rest of the movie was pretty bad. So it's hard to retain that much from it, but really, really fun movie. There's some interesting flourishes I don't want to spoil for listeners that haven't had a chance to see it, but there's, let's say, some characters from Nick Cage's past that make cameo appearances in interesting ways. And I think it's getting, I think it has a a short theatrical window and it'll be on streaming sooner than, you know, in the old days when it was 90 days or whatever. So keep your eyes peeled if you don't have a chance to go see it in the theater. It's definitely worth watching at home. And yeah, two Nick Cage movies in one week. That's the way it should be. So Malignant. Ian, I know you had almost no familiarity with this movie, right? You just knew it was a scary movie that had come out? Yeah, I have trouble with scary movies. You know, I have that fascination and deep-seated fear at the same time where I'm like, oh man, it's the new movie and everyone's talking about it and I can't possibly see it because it sounds too awful and scary. And so I got into that little mind trap with this and I was like, oh, I'm tempted to see what it is. And I think I turned it on and I watched two minutes of it and I'm like, oh, no, we're not doing that. It wasn't the right time. And uh, I'm shocked that the first two minutes of this movie turned you off because they are hilarious. Yeah, that was just drawing once you know, the whole movie is hilarious once you know, but when you don't know, if you're actually fearful, like it can still fuck with you. And it did. There was a lot of screaming and people being flung around and red lights and blood. And that was enough. Sure, I was that, like, that, okay, that's true. All right, let's bail. We'll come back to this someday. Then I was forced to. Little did you know. Ellie <laughs> rang us up and turned the Hell screws yeah. and I'm like, oh, okay, I'm doing it. And I made it through. I'm happy to report I survived it. Proud of you. What would this podcast be if you didn't? You write the synopsis. <laughs> so It'd be a really interesting <laughs> memorial podcast of the yeah. movie that killed Ian. <laughs> yeah, the third act, and some stuff happens. Now, Haley, when did you first see Malignant? Was it, you didn't go to theaters to see it, did you? Actually, I did. That wasn't the first time I what? saw it. I saw oh. it the first day it dropped on HBO. And then because I was so awestruck by it, I went and saw it in theaters. I forced wow. one of my friends to come see it with me because I just knew it would be that much better in theaters. And I was right. Oh yeah. I bet this was a fun one to see in theaters. And that's so cool because of the way this movie was released. You got to have that kind of reverse experience. Mm-hmm. It was released on HBO Max and in theaters simultaneously. For those listeners who did not know, I'll get into that more when we do the monologue, but that's pretty cool. Were you waiting for this movie to drop to watch it the day it came out? Are you a James Wan super fan or what was it? <laughs> so I am a James Wan fan and I think I knew about this movie maybe two days before it actually dropped. And then oh. I was like sitting on the couch looking for something to watch and it came up. I was like, okay, here we go. So the knowledge of it, I had nothing before going into it, which is fun. Yeah, that's the best way. I am utterly shocked that I knew so little about this movie because I am a person who I enjoy horror movies, but I don't watch a lot of them or very often. So when I was hearing all the chatter about how crazy this movie gets in the third act, (laughs) I'm shocked I didn't go straight to Wikipedia and read a plot synopsis to see what it was all about. And somehow I didn't. But then when I was watching it for the first time, I was talking to Ian and I was like, I know the (laughs) twist already. This is so stupid. What's the big deal? And he rightly said, well, it's not the twist so much. It's just like how it's conveyed, I guess, or how they utilize it. And I still thought I was going to be underwhelmed because I'd seen it coming so far out. But no, he was right. It really is about the way it's applied to the movie and not the content Mm -hmm. of it. Yeah. So we should say, stop our listeners right here. We are going to get deep into spoiling this movie because we just want to talk about everything that goes on in it. It's fucking bonkers and fun. But it's like one of the newest movies we've ever done. We've done bonus episodes on brand new movies like the day they came out. But this is the newest movie we've covered as a core episode of the pod. So feel free to go watch it and come back when you're done and listen if you don't want anything spoiled. Good call out, Ian. Yeah. We (laughs) we were about to get into it. Yeah. You know, we're doing the Shawshank Redemption. We don't go, uh, guys, spoiler alert. Maybe you should see this movie, but like this time. Maybe you should. Big Trouble in Little China, this 36-year-old movie. Uh, spoiler <laughs> warning. That, that's a good call out, Ian. So do you want me to get into the story of this movie and a, a little bit of backstory on James Wan and where this all came from? Oh, yeah. Let's hear how this thing happened. All right. So... 
James Wan made his bones as a horror franchise mastermind. He directed and co-wrote the low-budget, huge-profit standout Saw, and then had two lackluster box office performers in 2007 with the ventriloquist dummy sci-fi horror film Dead Silence and the throwback revenge thriller Death Sentence. Wow, he really likes like the cadence of those two movie titles. It's so close to each other. <laughs> they really are. Dead Silence, Death Sentence, <laughs> and they came out like six months apart. It's so weird. He had $10, a thesaurus, and a dream. That would be his last brush with disappointment for a while, though, as his next six movies would be huge box office hits, launching horror franchises Insidious and The Conjuring, and venturing into action and superhero movies with Furious 7 and Aquaman, both of which earned more than a billion dollars. And that's how Aquaman became a gillionaire. In July 2019, Juan announced he was ready to get back into the genre that made him by announcing he would be directing a horror film based on a story he developed with his wife, Ingrid Bisu. Bisu had been inspired by the sense-debunked story of Edward Mordrake, a 19th century Englishman who was supposedly born with a second face on the back of his head. Stories told that the face could whisper, laugh, and cry. Mordrake begged doctors to remove the face, but none would risk it, and he committed suicide at the age of 23 due to being driven mad by the face whispering horrible things to him. Dude, you fucking suck, dude. While the story was eventually revealed to be a fictional tale invented by poet Charles Hildreth, it still made for a good concept for a horror movie. Akila Cooper and J.T. Petty would flesh the story out into a screenplay, and in August of 2019, Annabelle Wallace, George Young, and Jake Abel were cast. Juan revealed the name of the film to be malignant and stated it would be heavily influenced by the Italian horror genre giallo, with production beginning on September 24th, 2019 in Los Angeles and Seattle. Filming wrapped on December 8th, 2019, but release of the movie was delayed. I can't remember why. Was something going on in 2020? That was a COVID joke. As if everyone didn't catch it. It was finally released on September 10th, 2021, as a simultaneous HBO Max and theatrical release. Either due to audience reluctance to attend the theater during the height of COVID, or the ability to stream the film in the comfort of their home, or more likely a combination of the two, Malignant was Juan's first box office miss in almost 15 years, earning $5.6 million its opening weekend, and eventually grossing only $34 million worldwide on a $40 million budget. Critical consensus on the film was pretty good, sitting at a 76% fresh rating on Rotten Tomatoes, but the critics who hated it really hated it. It's become something of a cult classic already for its, in my opinion, intentional B-movie sensibilities and absolutely batshit crazy third act. I strongly urge everyone to go to Rotten Tomatoes and just look at some of the negative reviews because, like I said, the people that were anti-malignant were very opposed to this movie on every level, it seemed like. RogerEbert.com's critic has a very good, interesting negative review that I don't necessarily agree with. But, you know, bad movie reviews are fun to read sometimes. You know, there's a lot to hate in this movie if you are so inclined. It throws a lot of stuff at you, a lot of different stuff. I kind of like it. Let me start there. I like this movie, but I think it's kind of a mess. It's James Wan's steamer trunk full of shit he likes, and he just poured it all out on our heads. And I don't know if that's something you do with an old steamer trunk, but that's what he does. You have to be really strong. Steamer <laughs> trunks are, like, large and heavy. You'd have to have a it's wide wingspan to just grab it on both ends and, like, you know? But, yeah, he might have super strength that's unexplained, just as with the killer in this movie. And so— No uh, explanation given yeah. whatsoever. Incredible segue. The supernatural abilities of Gabriel— that was my final question on the synopsis because when I got to the end, I was like, really? They're not going to explain anything about why he is this way? Like, I'll buy everything else. I'll go along for the ride. But they're just, he can manipulate electricity, apparently. It's a good observation. It's weird that it, they didn't even make you think of it till the end of the movie when she's like, right, oh, they just, now I have your powers because they're real powers. They're just in my body for some other reason, separate from everything else in the movie. Right. Do you have a theory about this, Haley? Or is it just like one of those things where you go along for the ride? Honestly, never once did I question it. I just... <laughs> like if, if I were in Gabriel's position, I too would have powers. You know, it just it's something that should be. So if we like strap you to our back, you would just get power. That is his oh, literal absolutely. position. They should have at least had like a montage of Maddie like doing martial arts training as a child, <laughs> just to explain some of it. You know, give us something to hold on to. Like he's learning with her. Oh wait, uh, there is there's one thing. Oh, they try to keep him in check with electroshock therapy, and that translates directly oh. to where he starts to be able to eat electricity and use. It for superpowers. <laughs> Eat it. <laughs> All right. Ian, I can always count on you. Every time I point out a plot hole, you've got some. Well, I just, this is why we watch the movies more than once because these little things stick in your mind and it just popped up when you said that. You know, this isn't a movie that you're diligently sitting and watching. What's the <laughs> symbolism of that? It's more just like a popcorn ride, but a fun one. Like you said, I like this movie. It took me two times to like it. The first time I was watching it, you know what? Actually, this would probably be a better discussion when we get to the end of the first act. Do you want to walk us through the first act of the movie, Ian? All right. Here we go. 
Back in 1993, at a creepy research hospital, a mysterious child with supernatural powers goes on a rampage, killing several of the staff before Dr. Florence Weaver intervenes with a surgical solution. Now, in the present day, a pregnant woman named Madison is assaulted by her abusive husband, who slams the back of her head into a wall. Later that night, while Maddie sleeps, a shadowy figure stalks and kills the husband and assaults Maddie, too. Detectives Kakoa Shaw and Regina Moss start investigating the case. But after coming home from the hospital, Maddie continues to be haunted by the dark presence. Kakoa Shaw sounds like an intersection in like Chicago, like the corner of Kakoa <laughs> I, and I Shaw. I live on that, actually. That's Haley Street. Yeah, so I was going to make a note about the kind of B-movie style acting that goes on, but I thought it would be better in context because the hospital scene is where you get the first inklings. My initial thought was like, wow, this is some bad acting. And then as the movie goes on, I was like, wait, I think this is on purpose. <laughs> when I watched it through the second time, I was like, okay, I get it now. But yeah, the first time... It's a little jarring because the way this movie was marketed and everything, it had all the trappings of a prestige horror movie. And James Wan is not a guy who makes ironic horror. Like, I guess you could say Dead Silence is kind of funny at points. But, you know, The Conjuring and Insidious are very buttoned up horror. They have that whole Catholic horror movie thing going on. There's not a lot of gore. They're not silly in any way. There's almost no humor in them. So I guess maybe it wasn't what I was expecting. It took me a little (laughs) bit to get on pace with the movie's rhythm. Did you guys find that as well? Definitely. Just based off of the Conjuring series, I would have never expected Malignant to turn out how it did because I would expected to just be scared the entire time and like on edge. But I was also laughing during this. And like during that whole synopsis Ian just gave, the music that was playing was just just the most ridiculous thing you could ever put behind a horror movie. Yes, that's such a good point. I didn't even comment on the score, but it is very, it's like aggressively dissonant and just loud. Yeah, I think there's a good point there that it's interesting. So I didn't have the wand background. I stayed away from all the Conjuring and Insidious stuff. And so my misperception going in was just based on, was this part of that elevated horror trend that everyone is so into these days? And it's got this elegant typeface in the title and this clean poster image. And no, don't go in with that. If you think it's elevated, you're going to be mad at this movie because it is the opposite <laughs> of elevated. It is. What's, what is the opposite of elevated? Lowered? Um, do you, do you, yeah, we'll <laughs> consult James Wan's thesaurus and come back to you. <laughs> One. <laughs> it's going to be two words. First word starts with D, one syllable. Second word starts with S and it's two syllables. Deep sunken. Now, if you went into this expecting like Midsommar, yeah, I, I could see that mm-hmm. being very jarring, which was kind of my experience. And it almost has to be intentional that it's schlocky because we know James Wan as a director is capable of putting out a polished product. The acting in Saw, I think, is very hit or miss, but that was his first movie and he had no money. Mm-hmm. So you can forgive him that. This had a $40 million budget. He was making a choice here. Yes, yeah. I, I totally agree. This movie, it knows what it is. It's never mm-hmm. trying to make any grand statements. It's sticking to the Giallo tropes. And I was, I'm a newcomer to Giallo. I've seen Suspiria. I think that's the only one I can firmly say I've seen. And I still haven't seen the remake, which I think qualifies for this podcast too. Did you have a background in Giallo films, Haley? Only after I saw Malignant did I like start researching it because I was like so fascinated by the, the type of movie. And I have seen Suspiria and that definitely fits. It's such a fun genre for horror. It is for such like a mega violent genre. It's so hard to take seriously and be mm-hmm. scared of it. Ian, the, you also were a, a newcomer to Giallo, right? I know you did some independent research on your own into the genre, but you haven't seen many of them. I have not seen them, but I read and listened to people talk about what they are, like black glove wearing killers with sharp daggers and black trench coats. It's kind of a vibe. So I can picture that. And I like that thread through this movie. One of my main complaints about this movie is that it doesn't just have that thread. It has a bunch of threads. It actually starts you off wrong-footed. It points you in the wrong direction. The first act of this movie is about a ghost, as far as I knew. And then like, oh no, it's not a ghost. It's a literal physical killer in a trench coat who actually needs his trench coat. He needs to recover it from the evidence locker when he doesn't have it. And he needs his knife. He's not that supernatural. So the giallo part, like, I wish it was more of a straight up detective stabby killer movie, which it becomes in the second and third act. For part of the third act, the beginning of the third act. <laughs> yeah. Then it becomes and an then... action Verhoeven movie or something. Oh, Verhoeven's a good call out. I, I could see that. There's a real subversive bent to like the violence in a yeah. way. which Semi-comic, uh, over-the-top violent action. Honestly, this would make a good double feature with Robocop for that reason <laughs> of just like subverting your expectations of the genre you're going to get when you go into it. Has any character ever been so obviously marked for death as Derek? 
the terrible <laughs> husband of Maddie. Like the second he's on screen, you're like, oh yeah, this guy's getting murdered immediately. <laughs> this guy's dead. Just the absolute worst husband anyone's ever met. But that's a trick horror movies play. The first few victims are always at least people you won't miss when they're gone to kind of set the mood. But you're actively rooting against this guy. So that's an interesting way to start off. You know, there's your, a your whole rampage. I didn't get it till the second watch. The main plot point of the detective story is they think Maddie's the killer, right? So it goes through great lengths to establish, well, Maddie certainly has reason to fucking kill this dude. And maybe she killed these other people. But like, it didn't really register that because the killer was such an obvious supernatural entity coming from someone else in that first scene, I got misdirected from the main thing of the plot. Did you guys have the same thing where you realize it's trying to make you question, is Maddie herself doing this in a real way? Which of course, mm-hmm. she's being puppeted. And that's spoiler alert. But. Oh, well, my immediate conclusion was that she's committing these murders in a fugue state okay. and yeah. coming to and having no memory of it. I, that, that's what I texted same. you like 10 minutes into the movie. <laughs> okay. So I'm the dumb one here, but I was just like, no, there's a guy outside the window. He's standing under the streetlight. It's not her. She's looking at him. Yeah. So it's, just, it's a little bit I'm of a easily duped. Okay. No, it's me. Sorry, James Wan. <laughs> You've admitted though, you're not a horror movie <laughs> aficionado. So I'd say it's, it's a trope at this point. It's been used often enough. Yeah. That makes up. sense. But there's also like an interesting thread throughout the movie that maybe like most of the people Gabriel kills, I wouldn't say they deserved it, but he's not just killing randos for no reason. And you started with Derek. This guy definitely has it coming. He's abusive verbally and physically and emotionally, and then gets into going after the people associated with the way he was suppressed, I guess is the best way to say, medically (laughs) throughout the years. It's almost like a vigilante. Like you can film it from the perspective of a vigilante going after the people that have wronged him. (laughs) Yeah, it's a revenge flick. If they would have cast Robert Pattinson as Gabriel, that would have been perfect to just bring that vengeance in. Vengeance. (laughs) Uh, He didn't really do the bail voice. He just talked like Robert Pattinson in it. Yeah, that's a missed opportunity right there. Just put R. Pat's face on the back of Annabelle Wallace's head. Speaking of that, what did you guys think of Annabelle Wallace? She's not going to win an Oscar for this movie. No one's going to win an Uscar uh, for this movie. Okay, I take offense to that, but go on. I'm sorry, Haley. The Oscars came and went. Uh, I don't think Malignant had any nominations. But, you know, she's good enough to service the story. I don't mm-hmm. ever feel like she was distracting in any way. Yeah, I felt like they let her do good acting. Like, James Wan was yeah. standing right out of frame, threatening the other actors. Like, do the line work. It's got to be weird. And then except it's for be her, more stilted. She, and it's fair because she has actual tough stuff to play. Like you can't fuck around with that too much when it's a mom losing her children. You got to let her play that straight. And I was like, okay, her pain and fear are actually pretty compelling, especially compared to the other people because her sister such a dork and Detective Kakoa Shaw is just <laughs> oh, a goofball. He's dreamy. <laughs> a dreamy goofball. I'll give him He's that. like discount Max Minghella is the vibe I got from him. <laughs> but like, it would be fatiguing, I think, to be with a main character who's doing this kind of of stilted B-movie dialogue the whole time Uh because she's in so much of the movie. You know, we barely leave her for any scene. And if we do, spoiler alert, she's still in the scene because Gabriel's there. So yeah, I I think like you might be wanting to have fun and make a B-movie, but I think that would strain the audience's patience if they had to deal with a bad actor for that often. It would be tough. So you can color in the margins with that stuff, but leave Annabelle Wallace to actually put in a decent performance. And she does. You could say in the scenes that she's not actually visible in, that's a comb over. (laughs) There's no double entendre there. That's just like... It's time to cut out the commentary. She's literally hidden because Gabriel reaches back and straightens out the hair. Like, I don't want you seeing Maddie. I'm trying to scare people here. I love the plot device, though, that her getting her head slammed into the wall woke him up. Like, <laughs> Crack that little fissure in his skull. Gabriel like, ah, suddenly jolting awake. Like, where am I? He's been asleep for, what, like 25 years? But he's been in there about. eating her babies, right? He caused three yeah, other miscarriages. Pretty strong. And... He's been, like, hibernating. He just needed, yeah, he needed a little crack to work his way out. What else from this section did we need to touch on before we move on to the middle? The visuals. My favorite part was when she's oh, yeah. being stalked in the house by the shadowy nothing and she starts running around and the camera jumps up to this top-down overhead view. That's I don't even know how they did that. It looks cool. You're seeing the house from far overhead and she's running from room to room and the camera is tracking along with her. That was neat. Yeah, it was like those when you go on Trulia and look at houses, the last two photos are always the floor plan. <laughs> but someone got, was like, trying to those. kill someone in the floor plan. Exactly. It was like a little maze of death. <laughs> also, the house they own in Seattle would cost like $9 million. What do they, what did Derek do for a living? God only knows. Also, what did Maddie do for a living? I forgot. She was a nurse or something. Something, something medical, like that. right? Yeah. yeah, she's wearing scrubs in that first scene. And that's that's right. all the backstory they give her. Yeah. She's a lady who right. wears scrubs at work. Thank you. Derek must have been like a crypto bro <laughs> who hit it big to afford this house in Seattle because the housing market there is insane right now. I think that's it for this section, right? Sure. Okay. 
The killer abducts a middle-aged tour guide and ties her up in his creepy lair. He says he's eager to kill her, but he has a doctor to murder first. It's Dr. Weaver, who we met back in 93. As the killer stalks and kills Dr. Weaver, Madison has a powerful vision. She can see the whole murder as if she's right there in the room herself. Then Maddie has a vision of another old doctor being murdered, so she goes to the detectives who use her clues to find the body. Maddie gets a spooky call from Gabriel... Then her adoptive mother reminds her that she used to have an imaginary friend by that name. Kakoa also figures out that Madison was once treated by Dr. Weaver and two others and hurries to intercept the killer at the third doctor's apartment. He chases the killer, but he gets away. Then the cops bring over a hypnotist who brings back Maddie's terrible childhood memories. Then Gabriel's tied-up victim breaks free and crashes through the floor of Gabriel's lair and right into Maddie's living room. It's Maddie's birth mom. Dun, dun. Absolute reveal. That was exciting. The Seattle Underground from the first part of this section is pretty cool, and that's that's a real thing you can do yeah. is go explore that. Apparently. Yeah, I want to see that one day. I don't. Nope. After this nope. movie, I do not. Think Gabriel's hanging out down there? Uh, probably. I think I'm going to Seattle next year, maybe. I'm going to try to put that on the list. Do the totally. malignant tour. You get strapped yeah. to a, an attic and you just <laughs> wait there until you fall through. It's a tour with no set end time. Like you just <laughs> you pay your money and you, it takes as long as it takes. <laughs> I did find it weird, though, the Silver Cup apartments that keep coming up in yeah. this movie. Uh-huh. The sign on top is clearly from Silver Cup Studios in Queens, which was oh. right by my old apartment. Oh, wow. But there's nothing to do with Seattle. I don't know why they did that. The building in Seattle has no sign on it. It's just an apartment. Oh. And, but it visually, the silver took cup the like sign. matches. Yeah, they took the sign from the studio and basically oh. digitally imposed it on the apartment building. Maybe Juan had filmed a movie there or something and he wanted to do an homage. I don't yeah. know. Or some Jallo films have been filmed there maybe. But I thought that was interesting because I was like, that looks like Silver Cup Studios in Long Island City in Queens, but it's not. It's in Seattle. Juan just stuffed this movie full of so many things. That's what that's <laughs> right? my complaint with him is like, he just put everything in there that he ever thought of and liked. And it's a little too much for that's your complaint, but that's my, what's the opposite of a complaint? My praise for it. Okay. Just throw it all in there, man. It's like a little collage of horror. Right. Just, you get to sample a little bit of everything. It's like a horror charcuterie board. <laughs> yeah. Like a, like a little Whitman sampler. <laughs> yeah. Every chocolate is full of blood. It's like the fucking Bellagio buffet, you guys. There's a lot of stuff in this movie. You <laughs> stuff yourself on all the things. You got to take a little bit on your plate. But see, the Bellagio buffet is good, Ian. You're giving examples <laughs> yeah. that only reinforce our point. So I like how dingy the lair is. It's not like cool. <laughs> or anything. It literally just looks like a suburban house attic. I loved that. Except that fan is dramatically oversized to give big shadows. That's true. And Gabriel is in there carving up the... The trophy. The, it's a trophy that Dr. Weaver had gotten, right? Yeah. It's a world's best surgeon <laughs> trophy that she won. Yeah, they were like, you can have a mug or we can make you a trophy. And she was like, I want the trophy, obviously. So. <laughs> but yeah, he seems like... A, that's another of my problems with this movie. First act. <laughs> he's a supernatural being. He's a ghost. He's got blurry CGI edges. He's definitely a ghost. I'm convinced of this. Second act. No, no. He's a real world guy. And he's doing montages now. The music is playing and he's grinding things and sparks are flying on the grinding wheel. It's It's gone so from <laughs> elevated to this like a gritty, I don't know, flash dance montage. Flash dance <laughs> is an interesting choice. I do love his getup that he's just wearing a trench coat over this horrifying like half face. It reminded me of like in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles when they would go out in public and just wear a trench coat and a hat, even though they're giant <laughs> fucking turtles. Like he's so obviously, they do a good job of keeping him in shadow for a lot mm. of these scenes. He, he typically only goes out at night. His encounter with Kakoa was hilarious to me because they have this big foot chase and Gabriel is doing all these acrobatic moves, <laughs> jumping down the fire escape rung to rung. And Kakoa is just using the fire escape as intended and like keeping up with him pretty well. You know, like Gabriel's yeah. not gaining any ground with these fancy Despite parkour his, moves he's doing. Yeah. Like Zoe Kravitz did those exact same moves in the Batman <laughs> when she leaves her apartment. And they're both um, wearing leather. Yeah. It's a whole thing. It's the it's big true. thing this year in movies. Ankle length leather duster yeah. that he has. Gabriel's iconic. I'm sorry. At least in the first two acts, iconic. That chase scene you were just talking about was so well done. They somehow find themselves in the weirdest underground storage place. There's like a carriage there, right? Yes. It's the most oh, it's crazy like an old shit. Old timey car. It's, yeah. He just pushes it at him. <laughs> it's like a hilarious way to kill somebody or try to anyway. <laughs> just push an old car at them. I love that. But see, like that's where I started to really have fun with the movie because like now it's a action cop chase movie and Kakoa goes nuts. Like you said, he's charging down the thing. He's diving through little holes. Like Gabriel is like kicking holes in brick walls and then crawling through <laughs> them in his backwards upside down way, which is really fun to watch. And then Kakoa Shaw is no slouch. He's just diving through those same holes right after Gabriel and keeps up with him yep. until the very end when Gabriel scales a sheer wall and disappears through the ceiling. But it's pretty fun. <laughs> Kakoa Shaw always gets his man, except this one time is what they say about him downtown. <laughs> 
But it was interesting. It was a real contortionist that was playing Gabriel. It was not a CGI concoction. It was Marina Mazipa, the Ukrainian actress, professional dancer and contortionist. She's been in several America's Got Talent episodes and ah. seasons. That's pretty cool. You know, I'm always yeah. in favor of practical effects over CGI stuff. It just looks way better. And she's like fighting backwards. That's pretty interesting. Yeah. America's Got Talent and Seattle's Got Killers. That's right. <laughs> so there's another thing I can praise about this movie. I liked the reveal that Gabriel is a backwards person. And it was subtle. And there was like little clues if you're paying attention. When he first picks up the trophy that becomes the murder weapon in Dr. Weaver's house, he reaches for the camera. And I'm like, thumbs on the wrong side of the hand. Something's going on here. Something's weird about this character. And then the next kill is Dr. Whatever, the old guy in the Silver Cup apartment. And then they show you a little more. Like you actually see him kneeling across the chest of the doctor and stabbing. And I'm like, oh, the arms are all backwards. This is a backwards person. What the heck's going on? And then the chase scene, you're like, okay, that's definitely someone running backwards. Or I switched over to Tenet accidentally accidentally in the middle of the scene. <laughs> but I liked that part of it. I liked figuring that out. I, I had fun with that. Totally. That was well done. And I lied earlier when I said I was never scared during this movie because <laughs> oh. I think it's this section where her repressed memories are being brought to the surface again. Is that where you see the phone calls that she had with Gabriel yes. when she was a kid? Because mm -hmm. that scene was actually creepy. Like that was a legitimately creepy scene that they filmed. So I don't want to lie like some kind of tough guy. I never get scared. No, <laughs> I was scared during that scene. Uh, so I wanted to give Juan his credit. I was just scared of how much I liked this movie. <laughs> That's cool. I picture Haley terrified. Oh my God, I love this too much. <laughs> and Ian was scared the entire time. Yeah, <laughs> we had the full range. I was pretty scared, man. I watched this. I'm like turning the volume nearly off. I'm walking across the room and watching the movie from a steep angle. I got all the steep tricks to angle. try to diffuse the, the intensity. I am of the... sorry. I did not realize this. Like you were so paralyzed by horror films. October must have been a nightmare for you. <laughs> it's just a thing. I just use, I use those <laughs> techniques as needed. It, and then I get back to business and I watch it. The thing is, it's all about the suspense. That's what kills me. Once something horrible oh, yeah. comes on screen, I'm like, all right. And then I press my face into the screen and watch all the gory action. It's never as bad as you think it's going to be. It's never bad. It's yeah. good. It's fun. But it's just that I can't take the tension. Except yeah. in the third act of this movie when they reveal <laughs> it is worse than you thought it was going to be. Man, was there anything else from this section? I had one thing to add, just, I guess, in both of these acts, but Maddie's house again, when they're doing the, what is the mind reading? Oh, the hypnosis. Hypnotic regression. Her living room, she has 20 foot ceilings. I just, I couldn't get over that because the scene where she falls from the attic, she falls right. like 20 feet it's and it, so it was far. all straight one floor. Yeah. yeah. It must be a double height living room, vaulted ceilings in there. Yeah. Otherwise you would have no second yeah. floor. And it just, <laughs> it worked really well with the hypnosis scene, the space really fit with how horrifying it was. That was a great moment. That's a good call out. It kind of reminds me of that scene in Get Out where he's in the sunken place and the room just gets bigger and bigger yeah. around him. That sense of scale actually does make the character feel more vulnerable. So it's a good decision to have big rooms in horror movies because you just can't check every corner, you know? It was a good scary moment, but did you guys also find that was a big laugh moment? Yes. Totally. Once like the tension is relieved, it's funny. Again. Both of these things are true. <laughs> she hits the coffee table and the whole room full of people who are just putting on their coats ready to leave turn around and like what the fuck I laughed pretty good not my biggest laugh of the movie though that comes in the third act oh yeah there's uh, more I laughs you know which one yeah. I'm talking about it's pretty amazing okay did you want to take us home Ian the cops find Gabriel's outfit and murder weapon in Maddie's attic and they haul her down to the station as their prime suspect Maddie's sister, Sydney, drives up to the old abandoned research hospital and brings back tapes that reveal Gabriel's true identity. He was Maddie's parasitic conjoined twin <gasps> until they cut most of him off and stuffed the rest back inside her skull. <gasps> Meanwhile, in the women's holding cell, Maddie is attacked by a bunch of criminals until she transforms into Gabriel and kills them all. Then Gabriel breaks out and kills most of the cops in the station. Gabriel then goes to his birth mother's hospital room where he confronts his mom and Sydney face to face. But an angry Maddie saves the day by confronting Gabriel from inside their head, taking control of his visions and his superpowers and locking him safely away inside the prison of her mind. That last scene Beautiful. is so amazingly goofy. I love uh, it. Okay, so the big thing we need to talk about is the videotape reveal that kicks this act into high gear. Were you guys shocked? Obviously, right? It's a pretty shocking yes. moment. I did not see it coming. You didn't. Now, John, you no. said you, you figured out the twist 
early on, but did you know? I did not think it was like a physical manifestation. I thought it was just a split personality type thing going on. And that she had been Gabriel when she was having like an episode and then reverts back to Maddie when she's feeling calm. I did not expect it to be two distinct people (laughs) sharing one body. I think because of the backwards person, maybe I didn't see exactly how it was going to play out, but I felt like I knew more of it. I'm not saying I'd figured out earlier because I wrote down, it was an hour and 11 minutes when I figured out the twist was coming. And it was just in time for me to get the joke of the corniest line where she goes, Gabriel was a lost memory buried deep in the back of my head. Like, yep, literally (laughs) was. Good stuff. And then when I went back and watched it a second time, you actually see him in the first scene. Yeah, you get a brief look. And in the credits has all those little edited moments together where you can put together that there is something going. I didn't watch the credits. I'm going to rewatch that. I'm just saying in the opening credits. Oh, in the opening credits, okay. Between the hospital scene and the first scene of Maddie, there's like all those stylized surgical scenes, but they actually reveal a lot of the specifics of the movie once you know what to look for. Interesting. See, you said you were not as keen a watcher as me and Haley, but yeah. clearly you were ahead of the curve on this yeah. one. I figured it out. So yeah, so for that reason, and I, I hate, this sounds like I'm like bragging or something like I figured shit out, but because I was obviously <laughs> an idiot about the first half of the movie, but the videotape reveal wasn't as fun for me because I'm kind of like, oh yeah, that's the thing. I knew they would do something like that. And of course it gets way more fun after that when Gabriel starts going to town. But even the reveal itself is so bombastic. Even if you knew it's coming, it's done in such a way that it's still jarring, right? It's like, fun. <laughs> the music alone. Yeah, it's so loud. It's screaming into your face. It needs you to know, like, this is a critical scene. If you couldn't see it, you will hear it. Oh, so she was adopted after this happened. So her mom and her sister are seeing it for the first time. Their reactions also tell us this is a big thing. It's not normal. You weren't supposed to know this already. And then we get to the jail scene, which is when the movie really becomes... (laughs) Something else again. (sighs) It goes into turbo drive. It becomes like that... Do you remember that Jet Li movie, The One? It reminded me of that movie a lot, where he's like picking up motorcycles and hitting people with them and shit (laughs) like that. Because Gabriel just goes ham on this collection of... First of all, now I'm starting to wonder, like, when does this take place? All these characters seem like they're from the 70s. That (laughs) scene made me question everything so late in the game. The lady prison, where they're all like... So first of all, that, that's like central bookings. You wouldn't be in there with like your whole group of friends, but they all seem to know each other really yeah. well and are on like the same side. They're like, we're going to pick on this one lady because she's not our friend and she looks too fancy, I guess, to be in jail. You know, Seattle has a very limited female criminal element, so they kind of all just know each other. Oh, it's you again. Hey, how's right. it going? Yeah, it's a, it's a small circle. And they're all such obvious stereotypes. They get to know each other very quickly. Right. Yeah, it's weird. They fall into a rhythm easily. That scene is so, again, it's James Wong. He's like, these are all of my favorite characters from a bunch of weird films from the 70s and I put them in a jail cell so I could have them fight it out. But they're not even from horror movies. Like they're from like exploitation movies mostly. (laughs) Yeah. And it looks cheesy. It starts off fairly close up. She's leaning against the wall of this jail cell that's, you know, concrete walls. They don't look like concrete walls. They look like painted flats on a stage, like in a high school play production. It looks like a cheap set. And then, yeah, the characters are all wearing costumes out of a random wardrobe closet. But then you forget all about that because it just turns into the most (laughs) gruesome blood mayhem and it's pretty fun. They start beating up on her and Gabriel ain't having that so he takes over. It reminded me of a movie we briefly talked about last week. Uh, had you guys ever seen the Logan Marshall Green movie Upgrade? No. Can't say I've heard uh, of it. It's a really good movie but it has almost a similar premise. Not nearly as wild as this one but it's pretty wild. The way Gabriel's moving and taking over the body really reminded me of that so if you like this part of that I would check out Upgrade. Okay. I wouldn't say it's horror. It has some scary scenes but it's definitely more of an action movie than anything. So that's just a recommendation I'm throwing out for the second week in a row. If listeners don't take it, then that's on them now. I've done my part. (laughs) So this is what everyone is talking about when they say the end of this movie goes absolutely insane. Everything from the hospital video to the police station pretty much is just a gnarly. I am almost wondering how this got an R rating and not like an NC-17, just crazy violent, not scary in the least because it's literally just one after another stock characters lining up to get beat. But of course, our two main cops, Kakoa and and, and Moss, right? Kakoa and Moss, they don't get killed in this scene, luckily. They just get a chair hilariously <laughs> chucked at them while they're laying down, like, beaten up. I actually, I drew a chair when I was watching this because I, oh, I wanted to make a note about it. I thought it'd be easier. That's very artistic of you. Hey, I like that. What an incredible scene. The use of the chair, like, twice. Just yes. when you thought that they couldn't throw a chair enough. 
they do it again. That had to be put in for comedy, right? Absolutely. There's no way you don't understand how funny that scene is when you're making this. No. Right. That's a laugh out loud moment for me in a movie that, Absolutely. you know, you don't laugh out loud. Even when you're like, this is kind of funny. You're not laughing at the screen too much, but that moment I had to. It's funny how much that scene works and makes you laugh because there's actually no reason to be on Gabriel's side. It's different when you have movies with killers or Terminators or whatever, and then they get to kick ass in a scene and you go, ah, this is cool, but I get it. They needed to get their revenge. But you're like, oh, this is just fun because this truly evil being is just killing a bunch of people in the most gruesome way. It couldn't kill our two hero cops, but it does spank them with that chair just hilariously. <laughs> Man, yeah, it, it almost harkens back to the idea. Like, obviously, Gabriel kills a lot of cops in the scene, but there is like a little threat of anti-hero in him. And they keep talking about him that he's the worst. He's the devil. He's the most evil being in the world. But in the grand scheme of things, he only really goes after people that have personally harmed him. Yeah. So, yeah, like this whole scene is kind of getting me on Gabriel's team like a little bit. I'm team Gabriel. But then he tries to go kill the mom and the sister. And you're like, well, now I have to root against him. Yeah, we got to rein him back in. Because this isn't fun anymore. These people are actually have done nothing wrong. So their showdown is hilarious. How would you describe it? It, They don't really have a showdown, actually. Yeah, it's pretty one-sided. Well, they have a fake showdown, right? Gabriel thinks he's winning, or he is for a little bit... There's a lot of, I think we're all kind of checked out by this point in the movie. Like, Speak for yourself. After the cop scene, though, you're like, okay, I got my meal. If they're going to bring me a little sorbet now, I'm going to eat it. But I'm kind of <laughs> done. I'm just going to just poke at this cheesecake. Right. All your senses are frayed by now <laughs> yes. from this onslaught of viscera that you've just been subjected to. So like a little psychic battle. I feel like it's a charmingly low-key way to wrap it up. She locks him in a little mind prison and it's cheesy because there's a real prison in the mind. And you're like, it's oh, beautiful. it's so, you know, it's so literal, but it works. You know, that's like a storytelling device we've seen before. Actually, it's a storytelling device we've talked about before with Dreamcatcher. It's like hey. the little office where, where Jonesy keeps all his memories. Oh, like, yeah. His, what did he call except, that? His memory warehouse his memory warehouse except now gabriel's in there oh shit jonesy watch out jonesy there's someone (laughs) in the memory warehouse so it almost feels like even juan was like everyone needs a little break a little breather now so we're gonna make this charmingly lo-fi and just wrap it up in an almost generic way. Yeah, now that you put it that way, this is actually better filmmaking than I thought. Like he made a keen choice to draw back down because he knew he couldn't top a police precinct scene. Or he spent $25 million oh, yeah. on a precinct scene and he's like, I got no fucking money left. What am I going to do? Like checking the budget. It's like, James, I'm so sorry. You need a black set. We can get you one set of jail bars and that's it. That's all you got, buddy. One, yeah. They're really tall again. <laughs> They're really tall, but not very wide. If they zoom out, Gabriel can just walk around them very easily. Because he spent all his budget on blood and bone CGI. Carriages. That crazy crane camera, like that seems to be a James Wan signature thing, that wide angle crane camera that flies around through the action scenes, following people and spinning. And that was great. I'm like, this is Matrix quality action shit. I was on board for that. Furious 7 is probably the second best of the latter Fast and the Furious entries. And by latter, I mean anyone after like Tokyo Drift, I guess. And Aquaman was pleasantly stupid, Uh but fun. So he's gifted as an action filmmaker. And I don't think he gets to flex those muscles a lot in The Conjuring and Insidious. Right. Universes, because like we said, they're much more classical possession horror movies that are about suspense and tension. So it was nice to see him blend his two skill sets a little bit in this movie more so than we've seen in the past. He blended everything he had. I agree. <laughs> sure did. I think he even tied in the fast movies a little bit just with all the Prius scenes. Yes. I feel like those deserve an honorable mention, specifically when she comes to a dead stop just inches before a cliff at the scary orphanage. And why did she do that? Like No completely. idea. So There's no other cars there. You could park anywhere. That was like, that made it perfect to see in theaters because you knew you were allowed to laugh because everyone was dying. Like, why was this put in this movie? Forgot to bring that up. That is the other big (laughs) laugh of the movie besides the chair. (laughs) They should have had more scenes of them, you know, changing gears in the Prius. Like, (laughs) I want to see Gabriel driving, if I'm being honest. (laughs) How would that work? Now we're talking. (laughs) Malignant 2, which we're probably not getting. Malignant, too fast, too furious. (laughs) He was already too furious in this movie. How is he going to get more furious? crazy. It's going to get even more so. <laughs> You'd be surprised. <laughs> All right. So that was Malignant. That's the story of Malignant. We should check in with the people involved and see what they're up to. So Juan, we know this is still his last movie because it came out pretty recently. So we're not going to have a lot of catching up to do with these people. But he is making the Aquaman sequel, The Lost Kingdom, which I guess is Atlantis. I'll see that. I liked Aquaman. Did you like Aquaman, Haley? 
I wish I could say I did. It was fun to watch, but I knew I didn't like it while I was watching it, but I still oh. let myself watch it. Does that make sense? Yes. Okay. It's totally a movie that does not stay with you. Once it's done, it's gone. You don't, I know I liked it, but I can't remember why. I'm, I'm a sucker for giant sea creatures. And I think there was a lot of those at mm -hmm. the end that won me over. Ian, you just watched it, right? Or did you watch the whole thing or just? I started it this week so I could get a feel for it because it would have been on my list. I like, I thought I watched that, but I missed that one. So I started it and I'm like, oh shit, I don't have time to finish this, but I am going to go back because I liked <laughs> what I saw. I watched about 40 minutes of it and there was already some of that one crazy camera and the action scenes where they're fighting Atlantean guards. What's her name? I'm so bad when I go for an actor's name. Nicole Kidman? Nicole Kidman is fighting in one of the early yes. scenes of the movie and it's already doing some of that cool spin around stuff. And I'm like, I like this stuff. I like when James Wan spins the camera. Give me more spinny action. Do you know who loved this movie though? Which is a funny aside considering the movies me and Haley brought for show and tell today is our buddy Nick Cage. Oh. He loves this movie. Wow. He called it an inspiration and said it was his favorite horror movie of 2021. Wow. Oh my gosh. Man has impeccable taste. What can we say? Do you know where he said that? Like why was he prompted no. to publicly <laughs> announce that? No, this is straight off IMDb trivia. Okay. Yeah. You don't need a prompt to tell people how much you love Malignant. Trust me. I guess not. Right. Exactly. <laughs> As for Annabelle Wallace, she was busy. She was in Silent Night and Warning in 2021. She's also, if you guys watch Peaky Blinders, she's Grace on there. Okay. I watched Peaky Blinders for like a season or two, but I'm not up to date on it. I don't know what she's up to in there. I also don't remember her being on that. She's currently on Star Trek Discovery as Zora, not Zoro. No. And filmed The Silence of Mercy, which should be out later this year. But we're going to be talking a lot about her, Ian. She was in The Mummy, the, oh. the Tom Cruise Mummy, I didn't which was a bomb. Oh, that yeah. was... Oof. Yeah. And King Arthur, Legend of the Sword. Two future episodes right there. Two episodes that are already on the schedule, as far as I know. So probably within the next six to nine months, we'll be talking about those. Coming for you, Annabelle. And then Maddie Hassan, who played Sydney Lake, Ian's favorite. She was on the <laughs> show Mr. Mercedes, a Stephen King adaptation that was way better than I expected it to be. But most importantly, she's in an upcoming Megan Fox and MGK romantic comedy <gasps> called Good News. Oh my gosh. It's coming out in June, I think. Noted. So that'll be fun, I guess. <laughs> Did you catch, I know Ian, you didn't catch this on your first watch, but there's an instrumental like electro version of Where Is My Mind by the Pixies that plays throughout the movie when Gabriel is starting to creep back into the picture. And I did want to call out that The Leftovers did that first and better. So I'm always standing for The Leftovers. I don't know anybody that watched that show except me. Haley? Just anything? you. No? Oh, man. I'm sorry. All right. So interesting stuff with the box office going on at this time, because when it came out, Shang-Chi was number one at the box office in its second week. Took $34 million. Free Guy was in second place with 5.6. But Free Guy was pretty much on its last legs. It uh, was in its fifth week at that point. So Malignant took third with 5.4 million. Candyman was in its third week and was pretty close behind with 4.7 million. Don't Breathe 2 was in seventh place with 1.1 million. So there was a lot of competition for horror movie goers yeah. there. If you consider Don't Breathe 2 horror, it's kind of horror, kind of thriller, kind of like this movie. It's a bit of a revenge thriller. The only other movie that had really come out that week was The Card Counter, which barely cracked a million dollars, but it was only in 500 theaters. The Card right. Counter is pretty good though. The next week, Malignant dropped to fifth place with 2.7 million and Candyman leapfrogged it with 3.5. So while this movie was falling behind, Candyman had legs. I haven't seen the new Candyman yet. Did either of you guys watch it? I haven't. Does he have legs or does he have bees for legs? He's got legs. They're just covered in bees. I'm just guessing here based on trailers. I mean, I saw the, the old one and I remember there were a lot of bees and okay. I'm sure there were in this one too, but I'm also certain he has legs at all times. <laughs> I, I, I think maybe this movie took viewers for a bit of a ride and there wasn't a lot of good word of mouth because... Like we said, it was not what you were expecting. In my opinion, ended up being better than what I expected. But I could see you feeling like the rug was pulled out from under if you went in expecting a prestige horror movie. Yeah, I think depending on how they advertised it, I did not hear a lot of press about this movie truly before it until the day it was released. If I would have known that there was a James Wan horror movie coming out in theaters, I probably would have gone, you know, but I just it wasn't there. Yeah, that's a missed opportunity <laughs> if they're not even reaching like the big fans. So we all know uh, movie-going audiences are idiots and like just about everything, right? So any cinema score rating lower than like a B plus pretty much is like a universally hated movie by audiences. Okay. And Malignant got a C. Wow. So people came out of this movie pissed off and that probably told, told people not to go see it, which explains why Candyman was picking up steam and Malignant was losing it. Oh, but weird. I don't think Candyman got great reviews either. I think maybe it was an audience pleaser because it was a little more, what's the word I'm looking for? It's a little more conventional. It's a conventional horror movie. It tells mm -hmm. a pretty linear story and you kind of know what to expect. Whereas Malignant, <laughs> like we've gone on about, is a bit of a wild ride and flip-flops between genres and tones 
shown quite a bit, so probably gave some audiences whiplash. Probably some Conjuring fans left the theater a little confused. <laughs> yeah, I'm trying to reconstruct because, you know, I watched it twice. And the first time I'm like, this is just a bad movie with a lot of bad acting and bad dialogue. And then it got me at the end. I'm like, oh, no, this is a fun ride. And then on the second time through, I could make more sense of the first two thirds of it. But, you know, it definitely was a vanity project. It was a personal project. It was an idea that a guy and his wife came up with yeah. together. And he's like, yeah, I'm big in Hollywood. I'm going to make my idea. But he just threw everything that he wanted to throw into there. And it makes sense. If you have two watches and you have the time to, or if you're like Haley, who has <laughs> the ability to deconstruct this stuff. I make the time. But you got it on your first try. It took me more than one try to like get what was going on. But what like, if say? you have that, it works out. Like you can connect all the dots. You can see what's going on with everything that he does. But it's pretty hard on the first pass. The question is, could he have done something to keep all the bonkers stuff he wanted to throw in there? Every reference, every switch in tone, every different piece of filmmaking that he wanted to evoke. Could he have still sold it somehow? And I feel like he's trying to sell it. In that first scene, you know it's bonkers. I knew it was bonkers. I'm like, oh, this movie's fucking bonkers. Look at this doctor screaming out these really goofy lines. And this is obviously meant to be bonkers. And then I'm like, no, but it just got serious. And so somehow I forgot to take the rest of it as bonkers and I lost the thread. Was that your typically elegant final thought, Ian? I'm going to say yes. If I don't say anything more, it becomes by default <laughs> my final thought. Haley, I hate to put you on the spot. I didn't prep you for this. Did you have any closing thoughts on Malignant? First of all, hearing Ian's experience through this movie has been beautiful. Oh. I This is what I live for is like making someone watch a movie that I really enjoy and seeing how they get to perceive everything. And it was very original take, I must say, <laughs> which also this movie, very original. There's so much going on. And I just love that James Wan didn't compromise. Like you said, he pulled every punch and he wouldn't take no for an answer. And I love that. And I'm glad he made this movie. Same. I think this will be a fun movie movie you have a few friends over and you're like five beers in and they're like i don't know what to watch and you're like we should watch malignant and they're gonna be like what the fuck is that like remember that movie <laughs> james wan made like 10 years ago and nobody saw it that movie rules <laughs> so that's gonna be my new go-to when we can't think of what to watch and i'm with somebody who's never seen this i'm gonna throw this on and just watch their face the whole time i love that i feel like this is also a good barometer for people is this a person Absolutely. i want to be friends with what do you think of malignant <laughs> but you gotta give them until the end to decide where they fall right don't judge yes. them too soon but after the cop scene i gotta imagine them in my shoes. Yeah. Because that was my experience. I was not on board right away. All right, Haley, I want to give you some time. I know you have an upcoming podcast project. You want to tell us about it? Yeah, just a little sneak peek because it's still in the early phases. But my friend Charlie and I are working on a podcast called Something Fishy. Unfortunately, it doesn't really have anything to do with movies. I could probably tie it in somehow. But we're looking at fringe communities. And since Mm. the start of the pandemic and the rise of QAnon and seeing how everything intersects and looking at different belief systems on the outskirts of society. That sounds awesome. Yeah. Thank you. I'm yeah. like, I'm a sucker for, don't even ask how many documentaries about cults and QAnon <laughs> yeah. and all that stuff I've dove into. So I will definitely yes. check it out. Yeah. It's a rabbit hole that you can't help but dive down or find out what's down there. Yes. So I'm looking forward to that. Keep your eyes peeled on Haley's Twitter. I'm sure she'll post about it when the time comes. Mm-hmm. At 2 Saddington. That's me. Make sure to throw her a follow. She's very funny. And watch Paddington too. That's all I ask. If you're listening to this <laughs> in the future, watch Paddington 3. Probably, yes. unless it's oh. bad. Can you imagine if they made it bad? <laughs> My entire life would just, there's no point. I'm sorry. <laughs> You'd have to rethink a lot about your personality. <laughs> yeah, I'd have to reckon with a lot. Oh, all right, Ian, I know I said that was your final thought, but if you wanted to throw anything else in there, far be it for me to stop you. No, no, that was it. That's all I got. I left it all on the floor of the police precinct. <laughs> so did all the police. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for listening. Please remember to rate, review, subscribe to the pod. Shoot us email, blastzonepod at gmail.com if you have any suggestions, feedback, compliments. You can also hit us up on Twitter. We're at Pod, And we're going to be back in two weeks. We're taking a week off. I'm taking a vacation and we're going to be doing Wayne's World 2. I'm so tempted to sing it, but I'm not going to. Maybe you could just edit in from the show. Another comedy sequel from the early 90s that I think is better than the original. Wow. Much like Adam's Family Values. But this is not as popular a take as Adam's Family Values was. (laughs) I might be the only person that prefers this movie to the first. And uh, we'll see you next time in The Blast Zone. See you next time in The Blast Zone. The Blast Zone. We pop.